the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show some 56 days before Election Day. We're going to talk a bit about what post-election might look like. There are plans being made if uh, the outcome doesn't suit at least one side of the ledger. We'll get into that and much more. We're also going to share a classic interview with Will Graham, author of Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice, has given his office for the use of the cause, and so I am grateful for that. Glad to have you with us. Hope you had a good Labor Day. We'll talk more about that uh, later in the program as well. Again, 56 days away from the 2020 election. Well, Portland General Electric said it was preemptively cutting power on Monday to about 5,000 customers near Mount Hood due to a fire risk. Tens of thousands more lost power here in Portland in the metro area with a dramatic late summer windstorm. I was among them. I had had my entire family over for a socially distanced uh, summer bash in the backyard. At the end of the day, you got all the dishes. Well, I was just about to go into the kitchen to wash them and the power went off. We didn't get it back until about 1130, 12 o'clock um, this morning. But thankfully, it came back. Well, PGE had warned on Sunday that it might cut power to customers in forested communities along U.S. 26 in an effort to prevent fallen power lines from igniting fires. Well, the outage lasted up to was expected to last up to two days and affect communities from Alder Creek to government camp. Separately, nearly 40,000 Pacific Power customers in Portland went dark on Monday night. We were among them as gusts approached 50 miles an hour, toppling trees and power lines. PGE reported that nearly 30,000 customers in Clackamas County, 18,000 in Washington County, and some 6,000 in Multnomah County had lost power. Well, the Clark Public Utilities District serving Clark County, Washington, reported more than 14,000 outages there. Well, the preemptive Mount Hood outage is an unprecedented move on the part of PGE. It follows two years of devastating fires in California that were traced to power lines. They were owned by that state's largest utility, Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, liability from those fires forced it into bankruptcy protection. The National Weather Service said winds were expected to peak today, rather tonight or Tuesday morning. Uh, that's been extended into the afternoon. The wind combined with hot, dry air presents a, an extreme risk that fires could ignite and spread quickly. So we're hoping that won't be the case, but the winds should die down at some point in the next several hours. Meanwhile, uh, they're um, tracking several fires in northwest Oregon and southwest Washington today. Evacuation notices have been issued and roads and schools have been closed. Multiple wildfires were burning throughout the Portland metro area and surrounding areas uh, today. Evacuation notices, I mentioned, have been uh, issued. In Washington County, a level three, um, which is a go now evacuation order, was issued at about 1045 a.m. for all Dundee Road, Dundee Road, rather near Hag Lake, which means all residents on Dundee Road had to evacuate now. Well, this five-acre fire is burning in the hills south of uh, 
Uh, the lake near Gaston, fire officials already closed Hag Lake, shutting off boat access or use of the park around the lake. At about 9.30 a.m., all of Cherry Grove was placed under a level one, which is get ready evacuation order. The Forest Grove Fire Department tweeted as well. In uh, East County, a fire and rescue, they reported about 5.47 a.m. this morning that crews were responding to a wildfire in the area of Paradise Road and Northeast Rosemary Drive in Washougal. They asked residents in that area to be prepared to evacuate. In Clackamas County, some residents in South um, Unger Road from Bower Road to Olson Road in Cotton were evacuated this morning because of a fire burning in that area. The fire was estimated to have burned about 25 acres as of 3 a.m. this morning. A two-alarm fire also broke out at a lumber mill in Malala. Uh, that's off Highway 2013. Uh, reports earlier in the day said it began around midnight when a tree fell on a live wire in a nearby field. Highway 213 was shut down. Residents in that area of South uh, uh, Waihoit Road and South Bird Road, south of Malala, had been notified of the fire. About 3,500 residents in Clackamas County are without power, according to PGE's most recent uh, update. And that was earlier in the day. That's probably reversed at this point. Also in Marion County, two fires burned in Marion County there. The Lion Heads uh, Forest and Beachy Creek Fire have prompted Level 3, which is go now, evacuation orders for residents in Sandiam County. Um, also, the city of Scotts Mills, south through the uh, Crooked Finger area from Cascade Highway East to um, Adana and north along Highway 214 and Drake Road. The area west of Mahama Community and Cascade Highway southeast and north of Highway tw- uh, 214, the community of Mahama east of Detroit, including Mill City Gates, Detroit's, and uh, the North Forks Corridor. Also in Tillamook County, there were some concerns about fires in that area as well. Several fires started overnight in Tillamook because of downed power lines, according to the county sheriff's office there. The largest fire started at about 10.50 p.m. in Pike Road. It's grown to a 50-acre fire. Residents were evacuated and a shelter was set up at the county fairgrounds. They also asked people not to call 911 or non-emergency line about being able to return to the area. They said they'll advise uh, when that it's safe to do so. In Lincoln County, there were two active fires there, both off of high Highway 18. The first near Echo Mountain Road was prompted a level three go now and level one get ready evacuation notice to residents in that area. The second was near a Kimberling Mountain Road that prompted a level three, uh, level two and level one evacuation notice. And a third fire in um, Waldport off Highway 34 near Milepost 4 had also uh, been um, started but had been contained as of This morning, there were some roads that were closed off in that area. So this has been a particularly volatile season, uh, given the weather conditions or uh, the dryness of the terrain and these high winds that we have experienced. Well, yesterday, of course, was Labor Day, and that means the unofficial end of summer on a day of celebration for the American worker. Well, the holiday originated in the late 19th century. It was born of the labor movement, though uh, many Americans, led by President Grover Cleveland at the time, pushed for and secured a September date to distinguish it from the Socialist Communist International Workers' Day, or May Day, on May 1st. Labor Day was made an official federal holiday back in 1894. 
coronavirus has complicated labor in America. Uh, taking a look, at, certainly because of the shutdown, taking a look at some of its impact, far surpassing expectations. The August jobs report showed an economy that is recovering strongly. Employers added 1.4 million jobs last month. That brought the headline unemployment rate down to 8.4 percent from 10.2 percent in July and well below April's 14.7 percent. And that decline came even as some more people entered the workforce. Unfortunately, we still have a long way to go to return to the pre-COVID 3.5 percent rate. We had had uh, three huge months of job gains, but so far have um, gained less than half of the losses in March and April. That's according to Dan North. He's a senior economist at Euler Herms North America. He goes on to point out the job gains so far have probably been the easy ones to get where a business opened back up and uh, brought back its employees. And uh, according to the Daily Signal, the number of permanent job losses increased by 534,000 to 3.4 million. Well, it's noteworthy that the additional $600 weekly unemployment benefit added by the CARES Act earlier this year expired at the end of July. President Trump signed an executive order in August that would extend a $300 per week and a benefit, a federal benefit, and another $100 from participating states. Well, that benefit was generous, but it provided an incentive for some to remain unemployed, making more while unemployed than actually working. Noting that the pandemic has been devastating for many Americans, but a boon for others, the Wall Street Journal reported. On the latter group, the majority of workers who lost their uh, lost their jobs uh, but get an extra $600 a week earned more in unemployment for several months than they did at their jobs, end quote. Well, it will be some time before we return to normal. That should be quoted as well economically. And it's likely that some things will be permanently altered. Nevertheless, things are looking up. And with that, a happy Labor Day to those Americans taking a one-day break from laboring and to those on an extended break, not of their choosing, hang in there, better days are coming. I say that by faith. Well, how one of America's widest major cities became the center of national conversation about systematic racism and police brutality is an important question, one that was featured in the Oregonian in which, while demonstrating their obvious support of the protest and disdain for law enforcement, did report what has happened in Portland over the last 100 plus days. When we come back, we'll talk more about that. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in our second hour, we'll share a classic interview with Will Graham, author of Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. He'll join us next hour. Well, it's been more than 100 days that protests have continued in the city of Portland, and the Oregonian took it upon themselves to chronicle events leading up to this, what is it, 102nd, 103rd day of protests in the city. Uh, they point out that in Portland, the widest major city in the U.S., demonstrations uh, against systematic racism and police brutality have stretched for more than 100 days straight, sparking unprecedented cuts to the city police bureau, night after night of violence. Uh, presidential condemnation and national attention. In fact, when I traveled out of the city into California, one of the first things they wanted to know is what's going on in Portland. Of course, their vision of what's happening is the, the entire city is devastated rather than in the small enclaves in which there has been uh, to some degree, depending on what area you're looking at, some devastation, but not quite as widespread as many have been led to believe. The ongoing unrest may alter the city's reputation for years to come. It's already begun to do that. And I certainly witnessed that in my travels. I tried to put things into perspective, but nonetheless, 
um, their source of information leads one to believe perhaps that it's more widespread and represents more people living in the city of Portland than it actually does. Well, the Oregonian reports that um, so far unending cries for change began three days after George Floyd's death under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer. But the arc of Black Lives Matter demonstrations in Oregon's largest city varied markedly from June to July to August before reaching their 100th day, which was this Friday. Uh, the first look, uh, the, the first um, event took place on the 28th of May when dozens gathered in front of the Multnomah County Justice Center that houses the Portland Police Bureau's downtown headquarters, the county jail and other law enforcement. That was the focus of attention at the beginning. The next day, a vigil for Floyd drew thousands to Peninsula Park in North Portland. After three hours, hundreds set off for the Justice Center nearly five miles away. At around 11 p.m., people started smashing windows, entering the building. Someone lit a fire in the first floor office. Police in riot gear streamed in to disperse the crowd using tear gas, pepper balls, and stun grenades. The Bureau's use of such munitions, if you will, that night and on subsequent ones rankled critics who said it was irresponsible to deploy the chemical agents as coronavirus spread through the state and a small slice of the crowd was responsible for the destruction. Now, I don't know what alternatives they might have suggested. Just allow people to break into public buildings and uh, wreak havoc. Uh, so I would love to hear what alternatives they might suggest. Well, within a half hour, uh, some of the crowd made their way to Pioneer Place shopping mall, smashing windows of nearby Apple and Microsoft stores in the downtown Louis Vuitton outpost, making off with merchandise and much more. By midnight, police declared a riot. The Bureau made um, 48 arrests that night, of course, the uh, decision was made for the city of Portland that those arrests would not, for the most part, be uh, honored and people would simply be allowed to go. And at 4 a.m., Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, she declared a state of emergency, imposed a nightly 8 p.m. curfew, which was soundly rejected. It lasted four days as the city council president, Hardesty, made the declaration while Mayor Ted Wheeler visited his dying mother. Images of demonstrators lying prone in silence on the Burnside Bridge could be seen for eight minutes, 42 seconds, evoking the stretch of time that Floyd lay pinned under the officer's suffocating knee or streaming in uh, mass across the Fremont Bridge, spread across social media and activated a broad swath of white Portland that hadn't latched on to the earlier waves of the Black Lives Matter movement. Well, many of those demonstrators who gathered for early evening speeches would eventually end up at the Justice Center, joining a smaller contingent of protesters already there. By 11 p.m. almost every night, pockets of violence broke out as individuals tossed rocks, bottles and other debris at police officers. Officers responded by launching volleys of tear gas, flashbangs to disperse the crowd. Now, critics said the police response was an overreaction to the actions of a few troublemakers, but weeding out those troublemakers and protecting officers is no small thing. Uh, the agency was mocked on social media when officials posted photographs of items thrown at officers during the nightly demonstrations. They included, included full beverage cans, which when you consider uh, being tossed at someone uh, are rather heavy, bricks, bottles, rocks. They were poo-pooed by those who were perhaps tossing them. Well, days later, Mayor Wheeler banned the use of tear gas, uh, save for cases when a life was at risk. And apparently uh, hurling items at law enforcement is not considered life at risk. A federal judge agreed with the mayor, imposing a 14-day moratorium on the use of chemical agents to disperse crowds. Still, demonstrators pledged to turn out every night until they saw progress, some citing historic protests during the civil rights era that saw demonstrations take place in streets for 382 consecutive nights in Alabama. That's almost a year, just saying that may be the model that we're following here. Certainly the outcome of the election may have some 
um, uh, something to do with the, the length and duration as well. Well, in an effort to curb the vandalism at the Justice Center, city leaders rented a fence to keep protesters at bay. Well, that structure was almost immediately lampooned by demonstrators, and along with the iconic elk statue stationed nearby became a symbol of the protests themselves. That has since been completely destroyed, the elk removed. Demonstrators in Portland and elsewhere soon trained their eyes on statues and other monuments to known slaveholders. On the 14th of June, protesters tore down the statue of Thomas Jefferson on the steps of Jefferson High School, which of course was named for him. Within days, Portland Public Schools announced it would no longer have armed police officer patrol its campuses. Other metro area districts followed suit and leaders in the Oregon legislature announced that they would take up a series of reform bills with an eye on police use of force. But that was not enough to end the demonstrations. On June 17th, the Portland City Council voted to reroute more than $15 million from the police bureau to other city programs and initiatives and disband several specialty police units, changes that would have been unthinkable a month earlier because they were needed. Portland police made 236 arrests in June, according to the bureau, and police declared a riot only once that month when demonstrators gathered at the headquarters for the union that represents rank-and-file officers on the last day of the month, lighting a trash can on fire, breaking some of the windows in the building. By then, the movement had bifurcated. While thousands regularly attended protests until mid-June, Rose City Justice, which had organized the large gatherings at Revolution Hall and other sites, announced its dissolution on the 30th of May. Well, after that, demonstrators rarely numbered even 300 at the small nightly protests in front of police headquarters downtown. But it's amazing what 300 can do. Now, the month of July rolls in. Police declared a riot three times during the 4th of July weekend, including twice on the holiday itself. President Trump ordered federal police to protect Portland's Mark O. Hatfield federal courthouse, ushering in a new era in the city's summer of protests. Within days, personnel from the federal protective services, U.S. Marshals and other agencies were stationed at the courthouse to protect those federal assets. Federal officers were not bound by the same orders that barred local authorities from dispersing tear gas into crowds, and they regularly employed aggressive tactics in clearing said crowds. Well, federal officers' presence um, and tactics first drew protest uh, participants by the hundreds, then a pair of um, Events galvanized demonstrators to multiply those numbers nearly tenfold. On the 11th of July, a federal officer uh, shot a munition at protester Donovan LaBella as he held a boombox striking him between the eyes. Days later, Oregon Public Broadcasting reported federal uh, police were patrolling downtown in unmarked vans, which isn't unusual, and uh, snatching protesters from the city's streets. Well, these were people that they suspected of having engaged in some sort of unlawful activity. While the dual outrages drew thousands to the federal courthouse for the next several nights, and among the most recognizable groups, a coalition of women wearing yellow shirts and calling themselves Wall of Moms, who stood at the front of the crowd to act as a barrier between federal police and protesters. Um, Commissioner Hardesty, she credited the group in part for drawing even more demonstrators downtown. That's what Hardesty supported. Images of yellow-shirted moms, or at least women, in helmets hit by clouds of tear gas drew renewed sympathy for the demonstrators, as intended. The wall of moms would eventually crumble following allegations that its founder centered the experiences of white women over black, native, and other women of color. So a new organization led by um, uh, uh, Demetria Hester was erected after the original disillusion.
Well, the federal government's response to Portland protests drew rebukes from activists here locally and across the country. So the mayor, who is also the police commissioner and was criticized by demonstrators for allowing Portland officers to use tear grass, uh, gas rather, on crowds in the protests uh, early going, cast sharp jabs at the president as he pushed for the removal of these federal officers. But they continued. Well, on the 22nd of July, Wheeler waded into the crowd protesting in front of the courthouse, checking in with demonstrators along the way. The mayor was uh, tear gassed twice that night, taunted by his fellow protesters. A development his office said was not part of the game plan. As he stood with the crowd, he railed against the president, uh, deployed uh, his deployment of uh, officers to the city, but took no responsibility for the events leading up to that. He stood uh, with the crowd. This is a waste of time, waste of resources. And my biggest fear, honestly, is that someone is going to die. Well, he was right. That would happen in August. Well, as Wheeler decried the president's tactics, called for the removal of federal police, Governor Kate Brown and Vice President Mike Pence reached a deal to do just that. On the 30th of July, federal officers withdrew to be replaced by Oregon state troopers. What happened next, we'll tell you when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in our second hour, we're going to hear a classic interview with Will Graham, author of Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. By the way, we are 56 days away from Election Day. I hope you're on your knees praying for our nation and for the outcome of that election. We're talking about the first 100 days of uh, protests in the city of Portland. We're down to day 64. Mayor Wheeler has decried the president's tactics in calling in federal uh, agents, not actually calling them in. In fact, their presence was not called upon by the president. It was the natural response of the federal agencies who have a presence here. But nonetheless, while Wheeler was blaming the president uh, for using federal police, Governor Kate Brown and Vice President Mike Pence reached a deal to do just that. And so it was on the 30th of July that federal officers withdrew to be replaced by Oregon state troopers. Well, the state police largely remained in the shadows that first evening as thousands turned out to demonstrate for the 64th consecutive night. Then the calendar turned to the month of August. With the feds gone, protesters trained their eyes on local law enforcement buildings. On the 4th of August, they once again targeted the police union headquarters. On the 5th and 6th, the demonstrators gathered at the Bureau's East Precinct, which sits right into a three-story apartment complex. By mid-August, Portland protests' uh, latest pattern was pretty clear. On the 19th of, again, August, demonstrators marched to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Building in South Portland. They chanted, then a handful of them began lobbying rocks and other heavy objects at the windows. Federal Protective Service officers armed with riot shields emerged, pushing the crowd into the street with pepper balls and other less lethal munitions. Portland police then swept the crowd back from whence they came. And that's how it went. Once the crowd's actions began dying down, Portland police would retreat. Demonstrators would march back to the immigration building and the cycle would repeat. Well, the rhythms, rather, of that night's demonstration were emblematic of the way Portland protests unfolded throughout mid-August. Whether in front of a Portland police bureau precinct in southeast Portland or the police union headquarters in North Portland, demonstrators numbering a few hundred at most um, at headquarters in North Portland 
numbering in the hundreds at most sought to draw a forceful police response by vandalizing city and county law enforcement offices and chanting no good cops in a racist system, a fixture of nightly protests. Portland's protests against systematic racism and police brutality began drawing counter demonstrators. I mean, what we're uh, supposed to be demonstrating against, we're given to understand, is uh, viewing all black people as criminals and putting them in one um, one category uh, that would uh, garner a response from law enforcement um, that's unacceptable. And by uh, drawing attention to that, you put all law enforcement officers in one category. All of them are evil and there are no good cops doing the exact thing they're accusing the police officers of doing and responding in violence uh, based on that worldview. So I'm not sure how uh, mimicking the very thing that you seem to uh, suggest you're protesting accomplishes the goal, but nonetheless, we're into mid-August. Well, the crew of about 15 drew a sizable counter-protest. Counter-demonstrations began in earnest on the 15th of August when a group of conservative activists staged a flag wave on the steps of the Justice Center, and that crew of about 15 drew a sizable counter-protest, which uh, culminated in a small march to a parking garage where some of the flag-waving Uh, Waivers, rather, had parked. The confrontation ended shortly after someone shot a gun inside that structure. Well, fast forward a week, a well-publicized protest organized by a group of far-right organizers drew hundreds of demonstrators to the Justice Center, this time creating shield lines uh, to push back their opponents. While attendees, they brawled openly in the streets with Black Lives Matter counter-protesters and the groups traded volleys from a paintball gun in broad daylight. Uh, The event drew almost no visible police presence and the Portland uh, Police Bureau, so long uh, criticized for its heavy handed show of force during the protests, came under intense scrutiny for their lack of officers during that demonstration's most volatile moments. So it doesn't matter what they do. It's not the right thing. Well, agency officials said that they only had 30 officers on hand because so much of the police force had routinely patrolled the city's protests and they took place uh, primarily in the evening. Meanwhile, conservative activists were planning another incursion into the city. And I find it interesting that the uh, Oregonian uses the word incursion, given the fact that we're presumably talking about residents. And when they refer to protests that have actually damaged property, they don't refer to it as an incursion. But anyway, they planned another gathering into the city. On the 29th of August, hundreds gathered in Clackamas for a well-publicized pro-Trump caravan that was supposed to uh, circle downtown Portland. Police tried to keep the truck caravan on the interstate rather than let the vehicles exit onto the Morrison Bridge, but scores of the flag-flying trucks eventually began to spill into the city. Well, demonstrators pelted counter-protesters with mace and uh, paintballs. Uh, one of the caravan's organizers put out a call for demonstrators to leave the city by 8 p.m. Nearly an hour later, with a few stragglers from the protest still downtown, a 39-year-old supporter of the right-wing group, as they're referred to by the Oregonian, Patriot Prayer, who taken part of the pro-Trump event, was shot and killed. A Black Lives Matters, uh, Matter protester admitted to um, a journalist uh, for Vice News that he did shot, uh, was responsible for having shot the man, uh, ki- was killed by federal fugitive hunters uh, who closed in on him. So here you have two people dead as a result of what's happened here in Portland. What a waste. It doesn't matter what side of the political continuum you're on. There are two dead people as a result. Well, protests drew decidedly fewer attendees in the days that followed immediately after that shooting in downtown Portland. A few dozen gathered in Woodstock Park on Wednesday, a gathering that soon ended with demonstrators rallying in front of the North Portland precinct. 
This is the uh, uh, police precinct. On Friday, the 100th consecutive night of protests against systematic racism and police brutality broke out in Portland as well. It will continue. It has continued. And that has been the pattern in the city of Portland from start to finish. Again, you can read more about that at the Oregonian online uh, where they give a blow by blow with some images from each of the 100 days, or at least the majority of the 100 days of protests that have taken place in the city of Portland. In other news headlines, President Trump has made it crystal clear that he has our backs. Trump received an endorsement from the Fraternal Order of Police, the nation's largest cop union, and the president warned schools teaching 1619 project will not be funded. President Trump, under government and politics, administration banned racist, uh, critical racist theory training at federal agencies and Stars and Stripes funding won't be cut, the president says. Kamala Harris reversed herself on the fracking ban that she'd spoke to earlier and shoring up a faux narrative. Russian interference could cost us the election. Kamala Harris claims. Well, Trump later, um, or rather Trump hater John Bolton has debunked the anonymous Atlantic hit piece on the president's veterans record. And a cold star husband has pushed back against the magazine article saying Trump respects U.S. troops. For the record, the Atlantic owner is Biden mega donor and close to the story's author. So uh, the anonymous author of the story that has been debunked by at least a dozen others continues to be debated back and forth. Portland police have declared a riot on the 100th straight night of uh, protests. We have exceeded that now. And Portland's DA says Antifa shooter appeared to be targeting counter protesters, allegedly stalked the murder victim. An Iraq war veteran, uh, an Iraq war veteran here in Portland says that it's like living in a war zone. He lives in downtown Portland. The Black Lives Matter protesters uh, riot and vandalize uh, Rochester, New York, and USC professor has been placed on leave after black students complained his pronunciation of a Chinese word affected their mental health. It sounded too close to the N-word, although it wasn't the N-word. It just sounded like or was close to it. In Colorado, a 12-year-old is suspended after a teacher spots a toy gun during a virtual class. Make note, mom and dad. And the sheriff of a southern Indiana uh, county town has switched to a Republican uh, to be a Republican, accusing Democrats of endorsing flag burning, failing to acknowledge God and not supporting police. And Kansas State Democratic candidate says abuse of the ex-girlfriend could have been prevented by Medicare for all. He wasn't responsible for his actions. It was health care that made him do it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear a classic interview with Will Graham, author of Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. Well, a California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection official says that the couple responsible for triggering the El Dorado wildfire during a gender reveal party gone astray could be liable to foot the entire bill for that destruction, which is expected to cost millions. Well, the fire was started by a smoke-generating pyrotechnic device used for the gender reveal party on the 5th of September in the El Dorado Ranch Park of something I won't try to pronounce. Bennett Malloy, a spokesperson for California's Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, told the outlet that the couple hosting the party was still at the scene when firefighters arrived. We know how it started because they were still there, Malloy said, That and the fact that there were surveillance cameras in the park. Well, the couple were also 
uh, could also face a variety of criminal charges, which would be more severe depending on whether or not homes were destroyed. They genuinely believed it was an accident, Malloy added, but I think now they understand the gravity of the situation. That should be a cautionary tale to everyone during these hot, dry seasons. Well, the California wildfire prompted air rescues of more than 160 stranded campers, and the Creek Fire in California generated smoke clouds of up to 50,000 feet. Hundreds were airlifted to safety. Oak Glen was ordered evacuated. Well, former National Security Advisor John Bolton disputed the main contention of The Atlantic's uh, recent report alleging President Trump disparaged fallen American soldiers in France, calling some claims simply false in an appearance on The Story on Monday. I uh, don't know who told the author that, but that was false. Trump and the White House uh, vehemently denied the article and slammed its claims as a hoax. Two sources who were on the trip in question with Trump also deny the legitimacy of the claims. But two former senior Trump administration officials say that while Trump did not disparage the war dead at the buried um, uh, cemetery, he has disparaged veterans in the past. One said Trump has used the term sucker to refer to Americans who fought in Vietnam, a claim Bolton said he wouldn't put past the president. In other developments, the president thanked John Kelly's aide, uh, who denied hearing the president call fallen Marines losers. And does John Bolton's memoir undercut the Atlantic on uh, Trump's canceled visit to the U.S. cemetery in France? It's a question yet to be answered. Well, a black jogger who was detained in Florida last month for matching the description of a burglary suspect has been offered a job in the county sheriff's office for the way in which he handled the encounter with the deputies who detained him. Joseph Griffin, who is a registered nurse and former military veteran, was out jogging in Florida when deputies stopped him for matching the description of the suspect they were looking for, a black male with a white tank top, dark shorts and a beard. You're not in any trouble or anything. There was a burglary that happened. You kind of fit the description. Let me just make sure you're not him. Okay. the deputy can be heard telling Griffin in the 17 minute body cam footage. I'm going to detain you. Look, you're not under arrest. I'm detaining you right now because you fit the description. The deputy went on to say the deputies uh, continue to um, assure Griffin that he is not under an arrest, but just fits the description of the man they were looking for. One deputy even uh, offers to hold Griffin's cell phone to continue recording their interaction. Griffin kept his calm with the deputies for another 13 minutes before they allowed him to leave. He said his experience as a law enforcement officer in the military allowed him to remain calm and compliant. In other developments, Detroit police chief has uh, defended the necessary force used when protesters aren't peaceful. And Dinesh D'Souza says recent riots and political unrest could lead to a rise in citizen militias around the country. Uh, Gordon Chang is warning that China is configuring its military to kill Americans and the hair salon owner uh, called out um, the one who called out Nancy Pelosi as thanked supporters after more than $300,000 have been raised. And Candace Owens, African-American, has responded to Cardi B and African-Americans claim that she betrayed her race. Candace Owens says, stop reading your DNC script. And one quarter of Americans say their finances improved under Donald Trump. The president says he's eyeing decoupling economically with China.
Well, the story claims that the left is preparing for a mega violence should Trump um, win the election. A cluster of far left groups like Planned Parenthood and Move On are among those who appear to believe the right is where the violence may come from. Molly Hemingway says resistance figures signaling that they are prepping for violent resistance in 2020 election if they lose, all um, while claiming that what they're um, asking is actually um, – pointing the finger in the other direction, widespread GOP violence. The bottom line, it seems to me, is the outcome of this election is not going to be accepted uh, very easily by one side or the other, whether it erupts in violence or protests or lawsuits. This is not going to be over on November 3rd. Well, Serbia and Kosovo signed a breakthrough economic accord. They signed it at the White House, the president playing a major role in that process. Hugh Hewitt points out that elite media all but ignored the immense significance of the Kosovo-Serbia agreement, two countries whose enmity has required tens of thousands of Americans over two decades to spend years away from their families to prevent savage killing. It is astonishing. And the New York Times has made a hero of Jacob Blake. He's the young man who was shot and uh, wounded eventually paralyzed by law enforcement, telling his tale in glowing terms in a recent edition of the New York Times, strangely downplaying in the story his alleged sexual assault. From another story, the woman who survived the assault has been pretty much ignored, but Jacob Blake, now a hero, uh, the alleged assailant, is now the darling of the left and the media. Not only did he stand accused of that assault, but he knowingly endangered his own children's lives by attempting to flee the police. Uh, it goes on from there. I won't go into details because it is disgusting. Uh, Democrats are worried about uh, states where Kanye West's name appears on the ballot, and apparently his name will appear on some ballots. Of the states where West has been victorious in his long-shot bid, the most keenly watched swing state are Colorado and Minnesota, both competitive states that lean Democrat and voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. In Colorado, Clinton won by a narrow five percentage points. In Minnesota, she only won 1.5 percentage points. Uh, Minnesota also has a history of being receptive to third parties compared to other states, according to J. Miles Coleman, associate editor at Sabato's uh, Crystal Ball, a political analysis institution run by the University of Virginia Center for Politics. The Wall Street Journal looks at the mayhem as close election could bring. Uh, another article looks at the uh, Democrats' fears that Trump could win on law and order. Well, Andy No has video of a fire they um, set, Antifa, continuing its mayhem in Portland and harassing a black motorist. And the attack continues in, uh, attacks rather, continue in Seattle as well. Meanwhile, the study reveals violence found at uh, hundreds of demonstrations in the Washington Examiners worth uh, uh, checking out. Well, a San Francisco gym is uh, open to city employees, but not the public. And needless to say, this has business owners fuming, fuming. Well, on this day in history, what's the year here? It's uh, 1892, an early version of the Pledge of Allegiance written by Francis Bellamy appears in the Youth's Companion. It went, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Interestingly, it refers to what we actually are, a republic and not a democracy. Uh, anyway, 1892, 1900, Galveston, Texas, is struck by a hurricane that kills an estimated 8,000 people. 1964, on this day in history, public schools in Prince Edward County, Virginia, reopened after being closed for five years by officials attempting to prevent court-ordered racial desegregation. 
On this day in history, 1974, President Gerald R. Ford grants a full, free, and absolute pardon to former President Richard M. Nixon, covering his entire term of office. 1986, the Oprah Winfrey Show begins the first of 25 seasons in national syndication. And on this day in history, 2018, a New York City subway station reopens for the first time since it was destroyed in the World Trade Center attack 17 years earlier. Well, the companies uh, that are testing coronavirus vaccines have pledged safety and high standards. The company said they'll seek approval or authorization for emergency use only after confirming the vaccine works and is safe. The uh, top executives of nine drug makers likely to produce the first vaccine against the uh, new coronavirus signed an unprecedented pledge meant to boost public confidence in any approved vaccine after politics has entered the fray, undermining confidence that uh, the desperate effort to come up with a vaccine can be trusted. The company said on Tuesday that they will uh, uh, stick to the highest ethical and scientific standards in testing and manufacturing and will make the well-being of those getting vaccinated their top priority. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. In our second hour, we'll share a classic interview with Will Graham, the book Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, some 56 days away from Election Day. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Will Graham, He's the author of Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. That's coming up in our next couple of segments. Well, the election has officially started. Yes, while the campaigns are in many ways still getting warmed up, the 2020 election officially started when North Carolina became the first state to mail ballots to their voters. Well, the early start date is yet another reminder that mail will be one of the biggest storylines in the 2020 election and perhaps one of the biggest controversies. Will people receive their ballots? Can voters depend on the mail system to return their ballots? And will they fill them out correctly, avoiding any problems with them being thrown out? While we should uh, make the integrity of our election a point of prayer, here are some additional things you might want to think about, pray about, as we get closer to November 3rd, which promises to be a season of chaos. Well, local elections are important, so are the national. For better or for worse, the presidential election is going to be the one that gets the most attention over these next two months. But that shouldn't distract you from remembering how important local elections are. State legislative races will determine the direction of your state. School board elections will determine what's being taught in the schools down the street from your house. And those elections are uh, often decided by dozens of votes, not millions of votes. So you have a greater uh, potential for impact. Take those elections seriously. Pray that other God-fearing people will do the same. Keep in mind that God is always in charge and you should vote anyway. Those two things are not contradictory. In a contentious political environment, it may be tempting to disengage, to count on the fact that God will uh, God's will is going to be done regardless of who wins the election. Of course, this is true. God's ultimate plan is not dependent upon the outcome of this or any election. But voting isn't misplaced trust. It's stewardship of what God has given us. It's a rare thing on the earth. As Americans, God has given us authority that we exercise with a ballot. The only reason God gives us anything is because he wants us to use it for his glory. Now, that's true of our time, our money, our influence. Voting is simply stewardship of our influence. We don't have to fear the results because we know that God is in charge, but we do have to be good stewards of the influence that God has placed with us. So be prepared to vote and vote for the best option, not the perfect option, mainly because there isn't one. 
Almost every choice in life involves trade-offs. Rarely do perfect options exist. There was one, but his name isn't on the ballot. This is true for jobs we choose, for the candidates we choose. When we look at our ballots, it will be full of imperfection because it's full of people. This could be a reason not to vote, or it could be a reason to dig deeper. It could motivate us to think less about the personalities involved and more about the policies involved. If having someone... Um, you like isn't uh, on the the ballot, isn't one of the options. Can you uh, be content with having someone that you don't like on the ballot and voting for them? When there's no perfect option, we may need to settle for the best option because we have a limited number of options. After all, if you aren't involved in deciding what's best, someone else will decide that for you and you forfeit your opportunity to complain or even perhaps hold them accountable. Well, the election may not be over on Election Day. Before the virus, 34 states allowed absentee voting. Since COVID, 20 states have revised their laws to make mail-in voting easier. Some states require ballots to be received by Election Day, but others simply require ballots to be postmarked by Election Day. This means that in some places, ballots could be counted weeks after Election Day. So be prepared. And the majority never wins in these uh, presidential elections. In 2016, President Trump received slightly less than 63 million votes. That's a lot of votes. But in 2016, the United States had over 320 million people and 230 million eligible voters. That means that the president received the votes of 27 percent of eligible voters. This dynamic is at play in every election. The important thing to remember is that elections aren't determined by the majority of the people. They're determined by the majority of people who bother to show up. And it's our job to show up. So for um, the latest on election integrity and voter fraud, you can check out uh, what's going on in the headlines. But if you want to um, make sure that we're on the right side of history, that we are prayerful and exercise stewardship, we can uh, check the scriptures Spend some time on our knees and do the best that we can with the authority that we've been given. Well, a phony Russian collusion narrative meant to damage Donald Trump's presidency may have instead desensitized Americans to a matter of real collusion that threatens to damage our nation's geopolitical strength, collusion between Russia and China. Now, Harold Hutchinson, writing for the Patriot Post, points out that this collusion is perhaps more dangerous than most of us recognize. Well, the Defense Department recently released its latest report on China's military. One recurring theme, it's... Um, is just how much more formidable China is today than it was 25 years ago. Back in 96, the United States used two carriers, their escorts and other supporting forces to let China know that it wouldn't tolerate any aggression toward Taiwan. Well, since then, China has grown stronger and much of that strength has come from Russia transfers of technology and Russian weapons sales. Well, back then, the U.S. was riding high militarily with great technological superiority over the People's Liberation Army. Back then, a pair of F-A-18C Hornets stood a good chance of winning a fight against a dozen J-7 um, fish beds, Chinese copy, uh, China's copy of the MiG-21, with no losses. That's how favorable our technological advantage was. Today, though, American F-35 and F-A-18EF Super Hornet uh, uh, pilots would be facing J-11, J-15, J-16s, and all versions of the Su-27 and Su-30 flanker. In addition, China's J-20 and J-31 fifth-generation multi-role stealth fighters are coming online. Despite our capabilities today, we can no longer bank on an easy victory in the air. 
American pilots might still win a one-on-one fight with a Chinese pilot, but the Chinese planes are getting too close for comfort. And since 96, the U.S. has neglected to prepare some crucial advanced systems. Whether it's the uh, Bill Clinton trying to cash in on a peace dividend, George W. Bush trying to win a global war on terror, or Barack Obama just dismantling American military uh, power to uh, teach us a lesson. The harvest of this neglect includes a sub-shortage, more vulnerable bombers, an insufficient inventory of air-dominant spiders, and a host of other problems and errors uh, of omission. But while the United States has managed to hobble Russia with lower oil and gas prices, thanks to uh, Trump's push for energy exports, the Department of Defense report shows a, a pattern of Russia cooperation with China across a broad um, a strategic a number of strategic initiatives, including multiple military excursions. Russia is also a major supplier of oil and natural gas to China, and this cheap energy has helped China and its military. We've never bought into the Russia reset that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama tried to uh, tried to pull off. Russia is, as Mitt Romney noted in 2012, to the derision of uh, Obama, a uh, a frenemy at best and an outright geopolitical foe at worst. And its collusion with China warrants a response. Now, the good news is that we have allies in Japan and India. We can help uh, who can rather help us check China or who at the very least can help us buy time while we return our military to its rightful position of dominance. If, in fact, the next administration, Senate and Congress choose to do so. Well, Senate Republicans unveiled a new targeted coronavirus relief proposal on Tuesday, aiming for an opening vote on the floor this week, most likely on Thursday. That's according to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Now, the Republicans have not marched in lockstep as to how to move forward on this. And it's been the last few months of haggling to try to come up with a plan. And it's not altogether clear that this one will pass muster either. But the slim down package is expected to spend about $500 billion in federal aid. The bill includes an extra $300 per week in unemployment benefits through the 27th of December, down from $600 weekly, the boost that expired at the end of July, a second round of paycheck protection program funds to small businesses worth $258 billion, $105 billion for schools and colleges, and McConnell's liability protection plan that would limit lawsuits against businesses from employees or customers who contract COVID-19. Well, the Senate Republican majority is introducing a new targeted proposal focused on some of the very most urgent health care, education and economic issues. McConnell says in a statement, the Senate's first day back from August recess today. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Will Graham. He's the author of Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. When we come back, we'll let you know what Tony Evans has to say about kingdom voting and a prediction that one in five churches are expected to close permanently following this global pandemic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, William, or Will Franklin Graham, the grandson of legendary preacher and renowned evangelist Billy Graham, has published his first book titled Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. Uh, Will is the third generation of Grahams to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ under the banner of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Will makes the lessons from each devotional writing relevant to the reader. He weaves personal stories, uh, memories from the Graham family. He's also included special family photos of Billy Graham as well, adding sort of a heartfelt and unique perspective to what people think they know about Billy Graham's life and the family. 
Um, He writes that as he worked on the book Redeemed, I kept coming back to Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. He says of the book that I hope that Redeemed will honor my grandfather's legacy and the incredible way that God used him around the world. Well, readers will enjoy content that's centered on the life-changing power of a relationship with God with themes like prayer, sharing your faith, and the willingness to obey God's guidance and divine timing. Will shares his grandfather's passion for preaching God's word. Uh, he shared the gospel message across six continents since beginning his evangelistic ministry back in 2004 with youth-oriented one-day events in Canada. He also serves in the, uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association as executive director of the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in um, Asheville, North Carolina. The Cove offers multi-day seminars on a variety of Christian subjects and features nationally recognized speakers. Well, in addition to honoring his grandfather's life of impact, through his uh, devotional. Uh, Will recently attended the opening of the Billy Graham exhibit at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. that highlights Billy Graham's life, ministry, and legacy. Will also will uh, portray his grandfather in the theatrical release of Unbroken, Path to Redemption that opened uh, late last year. It chronicles the true story of Olympian and World War II hero Louis um, Zamperini, who survived uh, torture as a prisoner of war, only to endure nightmares, alcoholism, and a disintegrating marriage. That is until he finally found true hope and peace after accepting Jesus as his Savior in 1949 at a Billy Graham crusade, which, by the way, is depicted by Billy Graham's great-grandson, Will Graham. Well, he joins us today to talk about Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. Welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Georgine, great. Thank you for letting me come on your show today. Now, um, this is such a beautiful book because it Uh, It's heartwarming to those of us who have loved uh, your grandfather for many years and uh, followed his ministry. Many of us came to faith through uh, his ministry, have been influenced uh, largely. And to to read your perspective, um, I think, just adds to our uh, our longing for that same kind of relationship and to know God in the way that not only your grandfather did, but your father and now you. So congratulations. Well, well, thank you. It's, um, it, it's, I, I guess sometimes it's been a long time coming. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me to write a book, but God never allowed me to write a book. He was, um, you know, when I first was approached, uh, I don't know, a number of years ago, about a decade ago, um, people came up and said, we want you to write a book and we'll publish it. And I said, well, okay. And I started sitting down and I prayed about it and God just said, well, no, this isn't the right time. And he, he said that over multiple years and multiple times. And God just told me not to write and to focus on other things. And then uh, through this movie project that I did with Universal Pictures on, on the movie about Louis Zamperini, um, someone asked me to write a, a book, and I said, no, God doesn't want me to write right now, it, which was true, mm-hmm. but I didn't pray about it. And then all of a sudden, I went home and prayed about it, saying, God, when do you want me to write a book? He said, now. And so, <laughs> Uh, he said, the time is now. And so I st- I've been working, you might say I've been working on this book for a long, a while, but now I've, I had to get it together and present it to um, HarperCollins or the people at Thomas Nelson at HarperCollins. And, um, you know, and I was grateful for their partnership in this book. And, um, you know, it's things I've learned. It's not a book about Will Graham. It's not a book about Billy Graham, though I'm in it. My granddaddy's in it. Mm-hmm stories from us, but it's it's really about God, how God changed people's lives, what I've seen God do and teach me in different parts of the world, 
um, you know, the things I've seen, the things I've learned, the things I've watched and exhibited in other people like my grandfather and my grandmother, for that matter, uh, and through my father, uh, Franklin Graham. And so th- these are the things I want to pass on to other people, the things I've seen to encourage them to live the Christian life. You know, I really appreciate the way you described seeking the Lord's uh, counsel because it would have been easy being the grandson of Billy Graham, the son of Franklin Graham, to simply assume that this is the course that I should take, that if an offer to write a book comes, that's what I should do because of the life and legacy of of your family. But to seek God as an individual and to seek his direction for your life uh, speaks a lot, not only about your commitment to him, but about the legacy of your uh, parents and grandparents. How challenging um, has it been for you to find your own way as a follower of Jesus in the shadow of such uh, such great men? Well, it, it, I tell you, when I came to know Christ, uh, you know, people, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, you're Billy Graham's grandson; you get into heaven for free," <laughs> and uh, you, he's got extra tickets, I'm sure. And um, and and they say it with a smile. I know that they're you know they're yeah. teasing me. Yeah. Um, but. I had to come to know Christ. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the first chapters in my book is how I came to know Christ. I want to share with people how Christ changed Will Graham's life. And it wasn't because I'm Billy Graham's grandson. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was through communion. Uh, communion did not save me. I want to be real clear on that. Communion didn't save me. But what happened was it was communion Sunday. I, I used to be in children's church. And now they kicked me out and now put me in grown-up church. I was too old to be in children's church anymore, and I liked children's church. They had great, they had grape juice. They had vanilla wafers. I loved it. It had a <laughs> snack in there every time. And then uh, when I had to go up to grown-up church, I looked, and lo and behold, look, they had a whole bunch of loaves of bread up there, and they had grape juice, too. I was like, this is the best ever. I love grown-up church. <laughs> and when the, when the communion elements came by, I reached out to grab some because I thought it was snacks. I mean, that's all I thought it was. I didn't know it was something special. And my dad told me no, and he didn't hurt my feelings or anything. I didn't really think twice about it. I thought he was afraid I was going to spill the grape juice on the carpet or something. And so I didn't think anything of it. And uh, we went home to, and had lunch at home. And and then uh, dad took me up to my room, explained to me why I couldn't have communion. And that's because I'd never asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. And so it wasn't because I was Billy Graham's grandson that was going to get me to heaven. It's because you know, it's because of what Jesus did for me. And when I was a little kid, I didn't understand everything in the Bible, but I knew that Jesus, or that God was real, that he sent his son Jesus to die in my place because I was a sinner, and I knew that I was a sinner. I'd done bad things at six years old. I knew I'd done bad things. I lied. I've stolen. Uh, I mean, I was a retro, you know, I was a bad kid. I mean, I was a good kid in, in a general sense, but I'd done bad things. And the, the fourth thing I realized is that I want to spend eternity with Jesus, and if I could, and the only way I could do that is if I asked Jesus Christ to come to my life and to forgive Will Graham for Will Graham's sins. And so my father led me to the Lord, and that's how I came to know Christ. So growing up in the Graham family, it comes with a lot of blessings. I tell people there's a lot of bad things that come with it too, but the good things outweigh the bad things. And it's I'm grateful to be a grandson of Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. People love Billy Graham. It opens up doors for me. I'm grateful for the name of Billy Graham. And um, and so I'm, I love living in his shadow because it's a wonderful shadow, and I'm grateful for the shadow that he presents. Um, but I'm not called to be merely Billy Graham's grandson, I'm called to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so 
wherever I go, I want to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever he has me to do. And uh, part of that was writing this book, and the rest of it, most of the time, it's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever he sends me. Now, as I mentioned, this is a devotional uh, for the longing soul. The title is Redeemed. Why did you choose this subject, and why do you think the Lord would have us reflect on these things at, at this time through your book? Well, that's a wonderful question. You know, uh, I'm not, to be honest, in all honesty, I'm not a very good person who comes up with titles. If you look at all my sermons, they're real boring titles. Uh, they're, they're like, because I, I was a pastor for a long time, so I preached a lot of, I preached in every book of the Bible, and I don't have very good titles on my sermons. Um, I'm just not creative. And so Harper Collins uh, and the people at Thomas Nelson helped me come up with the title "Redeemed." But I wanted to say, and I loved it because "Redeem" speaks of something being restored, to be brought back. And um, and so I like that title, and that's what I want this book to do: bring us back to the basics, um, to, to to help us redeem the time that we have left on this earth. And so I like that title, but I feel like it needed more. And then Psalm 107 verse 9 kept popping up when I was writing this book. When I first started writing this book, uh, my assistant, uh, she led devotions here at work where I live or where I work, and she she quoted this first, and it just it hit me good. It was one of those good hits, like man, that is a tremendous verse right there. And I started studying Psalm 107 verse nine and all of 107. On another page, I, the church I was going to, the pastor started a whole series on Psalm 107. And so when I ended the book, the pastor started preaching on Psalm 107. <laughs> and so, so it was kind of like the bookends of writing this book. And I said, okay, God, you're trying to tell me something about this <laughs> book uh, or this this verse here and how it needs to apply to my book. And so Harper Collins helped me come up talking about this verse, uh, Devotions for a Longing Soul. There's so many people out in this world that are longing for more in life, and they try to fill it with sex, they try to fill it with drugs, they try to fill it with alcohol, they try to fill it with money, success, and it leaves them empty. And I'm here to tell you that God's going to fill your soul with great things, but he has to do it, and you can't do it. And so that's what this book's kind of about. Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Will Graham. His uh, first book, titled Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul, it includes uh, wonderful pictures and stories and uh, everything you would expect in a devotional. We'll talk more about that when we return. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the first ever devotional book written by Billy Graham's grandson, William Graham, or Will, uh, following in his grandfather's footsteps, preaching stadium crusades around the world. In Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul, he shares intimate stories of growing up in his grandfather's shadow, as well as anecdotes from his travels that speak to the common struggles of the Christian life. But as he mentioned in our first segment, this isn't a book about him or his grandfather. This is a book about Jesus. It was released in October to commemorate uh, what would have been Billy Graham's 100th birthday. Each entry in the book includes a Bible verse, a short prayer, and oftentimes a photo, sometimes of Will and his grandfather and other family members that illustrate each story. He serves currently as a full-time evangelist and executive director of the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina, where he lives with his wife and three children. The book uh, will encourage you while uh, providing a glimpse into the personal faith of the Graham family, whose passion 
has been shared um, through the gospel for many, many years. Well, let's talk about the book itself. Each chapter reflects, uh, obviously, a different uh, focus. There are 50 chapters. You begin with communion. Uh, describe for our listeners who don't have a copy in front of them how the book is structured and how you um, see this as a devotional. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, each chapter, first and foremost, starts off with Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that Scripture is the most important thing. My devotional book is not the most important thing in this world. It's God's Word that's the most important thing. Uh, I'm a preacher of the gospel, and so I want the gospel to be first and foremost on every chapter. And so I start with a verse, and then uh, I want to talk about what how I've seen that verse played out in my life. Um, the ways I've seen it played out. I think almost all my devotions come from, as I say almost all of them, I know for one that was, it was before I was born. Well, there's a couple that were before I was born, but these are some of my grandfather's stories um, that he's taught me and, and told me about. So these are things I've learned from my grandfather, from my dad, from other people in life, things that I've seen on my own when I've been preaching the Word. And so I kind of share a story and how that plays out. And then I also give a, I always have a quote of my granddaddy that talks about the subject that we're talking about in each chapter. And then I close with a, just a small prayer. This is a small prayer to help encourage the believer to, to talk to God and hand their problems over to God and allow God to work this message into their heart. And so that's kind of the structure. It's 50 chapters, but they're like two or three pages. Mm-hmm. pages. So it's, these aren't real long chapters. And, uh, it's great. This is not a substitute for reading God's Word. <laughs> Make sure that you read God's Word. I hope this just will come alongside of you and encourage you as well as you read God's Word. Well, and it's a wonderful thing that during the course of the day, you might want to read it in the middle of the day or just before you lay your head on the pillow. But it's a wonderful reminder of uh, of the reliability of God's Word, how He works in the lives of His people. And then uh, to see some of these uh, chapters in the context of your family, and we've witnessed the, God's faithfulness uh, being worked out in your family. It's just a wonderfully encouraging um, uh devotional. Now, you also include a prayer with each chapter, which I find is a wonderful way to end a devotion. Well, I do. And, you know, one thing that my grandfather taught me in life, I I went to go talk to him about one day, and this is the, I was making a very important decision about leaving the local church, which I was a pastor of, to come and help the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And to be honest, I didn't want to do it, but I, I knew God was calling me to do it. I love being a pastor, and I didn't want to leave my church. But God told me to do it, and so I went to go talk to my granddaddy about it. And he told me, he said, Will, he said, we would love and be honored uh, to have you come and work at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It would be wonderful to have my grandson here um, and helping us. He said, that's what the Lord has uh, has you to do. He said, but I, I want to tell you about two things I regret in life. One is, he said, um, I wish I knew the Bible as good as your grandmother. Hmm. And, um he said, uh, your grandmother knew the Bible so well. I wish I knew it as well as she did. And um, and then the second thing was, um, he said, well, I wish I'd spent less time preaching, more time reading God's Word, and more time praying. I wish I spent more time on my knees. We could accomplish so much more and see more people come to know Christ if I had preached less, studied more, and prayed more. And um, that spoke volumes to me. And so that's why with at the end of each of these chapters, I want to make sure that we spend time in prayer. There's a small prayer, short prayer, and it's just 
it's just basically us, the reader, talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, these are the things I'm struggling with in my life. These are the things I need help with. Lord, show me how to do it. And uh, allow the Lord to keep molding us and making us into his image. And that's what the goal of the Christian life is to be, is to reflect Christ. And um, I hope this book will enable someone to look more like Jesus at the end of the 50 days. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's such extraordinary advice that your grandfather gave to you. And for those of us who know him as the evangelist, uh, to hear him express any regret at all when you consider the, the millions of people whose lives were impacted by the clear presentation of the gospel in the ministry of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, to hear his advice to his grandson, how did that impact the course of your ministry and, and how you move forward in seeking God's will and how you spend your time in ministry? Well, I appreciate um I wish, I'm not sure if there's ever going to be a person alive that says, oh, yeah, I, sp- I spent enough time in prayer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if we'll ever get to that point. Because uh, to be honest, I saw my granddaddy, I, I kind of joke and say I saw him doing three things. Um, he was always reading his Bible. He was always praying. And he was always watching Larry King live. <laughs> <laughs> so he loved watching Larry King live because he loved learning about other people. And Larry King was one of the best at just talking to people and and where people famous people would come on the show and he would get to interview them and you get to know this famous person and uh, my granddad loved watching Larry King because uh, and he used what he learned on Larry King so that when he met this individual in real life sometime down the road he already had a basis for a conversation because he learned it from Larry King's show and so and I say all this because I wish I'd spent more do I spend enough time in prayer no do I spend enough time in God's Word? No. And I'm not sure where the right amount is either. And um, I just want to be striving that I keep praying. I spend more time on my knees and listen to my granddaddy do less preaching, more praying, and more studying God's Word. And um, and that part, I'm not sure. If, I don't know what that – he didn't tell me that's uh, 30 minutes or an hour. <laughs> I think that's the part that the Holy Spirit's got to lead Yeah, here, Yeah, it's a, a worthy so, uh, aspiration. <laughs> well, let's talk exactly. about just the, the, the idea of devotion. Uh, we all have very busy lives. There are things that must be done in order for us to, to um, provide for our families and so on. Uh, and yet we are, are encouraged in Scripture to spend time away in God's Word, to spend time in devotion. Um, this talked a little bit about why it's important for us to designate um, intentionally times in which we just step away, maybe for mere moments, but to step away and spend time in God's presence uh, in a quiet time, uh, reading through a devotion like Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. Why is that so important? Well, it, it, something I learned from my great-grandfather. Now, this is not Billy Graham. This would be Billy Graham's father-in-law, Ruth Graham's father, my great-grandfather, who's a missionary in China. And he ran a medical hospital over there, and as a doctor, as a, and then a husband and a father. I mean, he had a lot of responsibilities over there. And he would look at his schedule for the next day, and he said, oh, my goodness, look at all these surgeries i got to do, all these things. He said, I'm going to need to spend more time in prayer. Hmm. And oftentimes when we get busy, we do less prayer. And something my great-grandfather taught me is that we need to spend more time in prayer when we're busy and give it unto the Lord. And... um you know, and I think it's very important that every Christian spend time with the Lord. Listen, I know we spend a lot of time in cars, driving to work, spend stuck in traffic, picking up kids. Man, that's when we can be pouring out our heart to the Lord and uh, praying to the Lord, giving that day to Him. It's a great way to keep our mind focused on God. 
and tells the Lord, you know, help us be slow to speak. <laughs> you know, I think our mouth gets us in more trouble than anything else. And say, Lord, I got some big decisions I got to make. Help me to speak correctly and to be and to speak positively toward other people, uh, so I can be a positive person around others, and help me to be a witness for you. And that comes through prayer. And when we just talk to God, and we spend so much time in the car, we'll listen to radio. And listen, they're going to be listening to your show. That's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but we need to spend time in with God, and uh, that's real important. And um, and I'm not a perfect example of it. I'm not a perfect example, but we need to strive to talk more with God and listen to God. And God speaks through His Word. And so I want to encourage people to be studying God's Word through, not just praying, but studying God's Word. Yes. Um, a devotional book's a good thing, but it's not a substitute for the Word of God. And we should be spending time in God's Word. That's why I've included God's Word in this, so we can spend a little time in God's Word. But I would encourage your readers or your listeners to be to be reading God's Word on their own, apart from my book. But this book's a great supplement to come along and to encourage you a little bit further in your study as well. Yeah. Once again, the book is titled The Devotional, Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. Will Graham, it's been such a pleasure to, uh, to talk with you, and congratulations on your first book. Well, thank you, Georgine. Great talking with you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. By the way, the book is published by Thomas Nelson and is currently available in bookstores. What a tremendous legacy uh, that he can look back uh, on, thinking of his uh, great-grandparents and his grandparents, his father, and so on. But each one of us has the same capacity to leave a legacy of faith and faithfulness. So I think you'll find encouragement in redeemed devotions for the longing soul. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this is election season, of course, and Pastor Tony Evans has just started a new series on kingdom voting. He says the church has become a bad example of who God is. We talked earlier in the program about being good stewards over the authority that God has allowed us to exercise during this season in a constitutional republic where we can choose our own leaders. Now, the outcome doesn't always reflect our priorities, or for that matter, his, but we do have that opportunity. Well, Pastor Tony Evans, he, of course, is the longtime pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Texas. He launched this new sermon series titled Kingdom Voting on Sunday, preaching on what God has to say to Christians about how to vote. Now, one might assume he's talking about who to vote for. He's talking about how to vote. Well, he started his sermon acknowledging that a conversation on voting can easily become toxic as people take sides and remain dedicated to their positions. There's divisiveness not only in the culture, but also in the church that's facilitated disharmony, disunity and conflict in the broader society. He said months ahead of the presidential election, that was the case and certainly leading up to it. And that's due to a lack of proper kingdom perspective when it comes to God's activity in society. He said this is why the church has become as bad as or worse than the world, allowing ourselves to be a poor example of who God is and how he uh, functions with regards to government. So how should a Christian vote? Until the church gets it right, he says, the culture can't get it right. Well, the kingdom perspective is in the scriptures. But the problem, he says, is that people who profess to be Christians often change books or take part of uh, of the book when it comes to their political positions. We can't ignore the whole counsel of God, he warned. Kingdom voting is the opportunity and responsibility of committed Christians to partner with God by expanding his rule in society through civil government. 
It's only to the degree that you include God's person and his policies in society through civil government, as he defines it, as he defines it, not as you prefer, that we can begin to see healing in the church so that it can be modeled in the culture. Tony Evans' program, of course, is heard on KPDQ, and I would encourage you to listen uh, for that uh, particular series um, when it airs on KPDQ. Well, as many as one in five churches could permanently, could permanently close as a result of shutdowns stemming from the coronavirus pandemic, according to David Kinneman, president of the prominent Christian research organization Barna. In an interview with NPR on Monday regarding the status of American churches after months of shutdowns, Kinneman said, although churches were handling things pretty swimmingly at first, circumstances have changed for some. Now, he noted that Although many churches have opened as states shut down orders are loosened, their services have had a lot less people coming. Well, part of the reason for that, of course, is there are people who are vulnerable and they're choosing to engage in church in other ways that do not expose them to what they believe could undermine their health. So fewer people are coming. They're recognizing that the relationship that uh, they thought were much deeper with people, were actually not as deep as they expected, Kenneman says on NPR. And I think that might be a, a bit speculative, but nonetheless, I'm quoting. Kenneman then explained that in keeping with research from earlier this year, he still expected to see about one in five churches permanently close within the next 18 months. You might recall it's been at the beginning of the pandemic, there were efforts to uh, raise funds for smaller churches that found it very difficult to continue under the circumstances that were just unfolding at that time. And many pastors said without this financial assistance, we could not have continued. So uh, we know that some churches certainly are struggling during this season, as are uh, many others. But again, he goes on to say, if anything, I think that Prediction was based on data about two, two and a half months ago, and I think we're even more likely to see that to be the case today. And again, he's referring to one in five churches permanently closing within the next 18 months. Now, what constitutes circumstances that would lead to a church closure? I'll leave that an open question, but he goes on to say the disruptions related to giving and maybe even as important uh, to all that is that even for those churches that have reopened, they're seeing much smaller numbers of people show up. So simply reopening a church doesn't fix the underlying economic challenges that you might have, end quote. Well, one parameter, he explained, was how there have been uh, drops in belief among pastors that their churches will survive the pandemic, going from 70 percent responding that they were very confident early on to 58 percent responding to the same most recently. Now, again, he's basing his um speculation on how pastors have responded to a survey that was uh, given early on in the pandemic and given again now. He says there's a drop in belief among pastors that their churches will survive the pandemic, going from 70% responding that they were very confident early uh, early on to 58% responding uh, the same more recently. Now, this may have something to do with giving a pastor who um, has a congregation that isn't um, working and cannot give people who simply haven't given because the normal mechanism uh, while seated in church is no longer available to them. There are any number of reasons, but it is concerning that one in five churches, and that's referring to specific congregations meeting at a specific location, one in five facing permanent closure within 18 months due to COVID-19 shutdowns. Now, what that doesn't mean is that the church is somehow um, closing because we cannot meet uh, or choose not to meet or do not meet 
uh, at a singular location as regularly as we did prior to COVID-19. The church, as we know from Scripture, is not a building. It's not a particular collection of individuals. The body of Christ reflects the whole of those who have uh, come to faith in Christ and are, are named by him uh, through the sacrifice he made on our behalf. So the church will survive, whether or not individual churches uh, will be able to continue as they had prior to COVID-19 is what's being called into question here. The church, the body of Christ, will continue to not only survive, but thrive and grow and do what God has called us to do, because we know that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church that God has appointed uh, to do his work here on earth. So while it's disheartening, um, it's a reminder that if you are attending a church that might be struggling, you intend to return when things are back to normal and you have the capacity, tithes and offerings are an important part of what allows the church to continue to um, move as one forward. So supporting pastors and others who minister for the church, um, supporting the the uh, ministry of the church to the broader community, it's important during this season. We're making uh, payments to our light bill, and I would think it's important that we remember that we are part of a light community, if you will, and making that a part of what's most important to us might help change that statistic, encourage those who are specifically called to lead uh, congregations, they're called to be pastors and teachers and so on, um, that might uh, might help during this coronavirus season. My hope is that when Barna takes, uh, once again, when he takes uh, Mr. Kinneman, uh, this survey back to pastors, and we're months further down this um, pandemic, uh, that those numbers will, will be um, overstated, that far fewer churches were forced to, uh, to close for a variety of reasons, and that pastors are no longer discouraged that they can continue to walk in their calling. Well, I want to thank James Blind for Producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us right here again tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.